the book of Revelation, chapter 14. We continue in this glorious, at times, very challenging book. A letter John wrote to the churches there, the seven churches in Asia Minor, and of course, to the church in every age. In Revelation chapter 14, we find an accompanying passage to what we just looked at in verses 6 through 7. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 6 through 12 so that we can understand the context. One is the declaration of the good news of salvation. The other, the sentence of judgment and damnation to those who reject the offer of the gospel. Revelation chapter 14 Beginning in verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God. And the faith of Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, we come to you this morning, and our greatest desire is and ought to be, if it is not, to learn what you would have for us from your mouth through your word. What greater opportunity to sit at the feet of the Messiah like Mary, to lay aside our labors. And Lord, as our crockpots are set, as our oven timers are on, as we think about what may come later, set those thoughts aside for a moment. Lord, enable us to focus upon your word which gives understanding, your word that gives light and life and health and peace. And so make us a people now devoted to love and good deeds, all for your glory, that we may flee from the wrath that is to come. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. One of the things that often happens as I am composing a sermon, 
is that I go through a number, number of, of title changes. Uh, the titles and the outlines are sometimes more creative than others. Sometimes titles never come to see the light of day. Some of them are boring. Some of them are a little too saucy. But they do capture the sentiment of what I think the text often says. Titles are like elevator pitches. And in just a few words, you need to be able to understand what a particular text is about. One of the things that I think the book of Revelation gives us permission to do, and really much of God's word, for we are a church that is largely divorced from the clear reading and preaching and teaching of God's word, is that there is much in the way of strong language in the scriptures. Um, If you doubt me, Just remember, I preached through the book of Leviticus not too long ago. (laughs) And that whole experience is one of how do I sort of slalom my way through these indelicate passages delicately. And sometimes you just have to go right through it. Uh, in In your bulletin, the title is written, The Fallenness of Babylon, which is a very descriptive and helpful title. And I wrestled and labored whether I should even mention what is for me in my notes, my working title. But I think it's apt if you hear it with charity and patience. To hell with rebellion. That's the actual working title. And the reason I entitled it that is because that is what rebellion gets us. And in all my days as a missionary prior to my going to seminary, Every single gospel presentation was to avoid that very topic, hell. You were to maximize, you were to emphasize the glory of forgiveness, which is good. But from what? From what? Parents, you know about the spoiled child. The child that only ever gets compliments and congratulations and never the rod. You know what I'm talking about. You all went to school with them. You wish you could have been them, but by the time you become an adult, you are grateful to God for all the licks you did get because you realize that the kindness of God is displayed not only by declarations of mercy, but warnings of condemnation and judgment. Years ago, uh, Michael Horton, who I, I take some issue with, especially recently, was interviewing, I think his name is John Schuler, the former pastor of the Crystal Cathedral in California. I don't know exactly what his name is. Robert, I don't know who I just criticized. <laughs> This is why you don't name names unless you get the name exactly right. (laughs) He was being interviewed by Michael Horton and the other hosts of that particular radio show. Um, Children, a radio is something you have to turn a dial to, and if you don't get it right, it doesn't work. Podcasts are the new talk radio, and they were interviewing about the topic of sin. And they said, do you ever preach on sin? 
And I may not remember his name, but I remember what he said. And I remember the way he said it. Oh, no. No. I never emphasize sin. For that would be a great discouragement and impediment to people coming to Christ. I said, to Christ or to filling the coffers? That glass is expensive, I would imagine, and it needs a lot of cleaning. That great idolatry, not of Christ, and an altar and a sanctuary devoted to him, but the glory of men. Dear saints, I say all that to say this. If we are to promote the gospel of salvation, we must adequately, faithfully, sufficiently convey also the depths of judgment. For the only thing that is equal to the glory and the majesty of the grace of God is the terror and everlasting nature also of his judgment. And though Christ has come in meekness and perceived weakness, this is the great paradox of the cross, which is why Luther says we are to be theologians of the cross. Let us not be mistaken that the cross is merely a display of weakness, for it is in fact at the cross where Christ triumphs over sin and in his resurrection kills sin. The death of death and the death of Christ. What these angels are proclaiming are the way of mercy and salvation and the way of judgment and terror. That is what I want to look at this morning. So be careful who you say that to. But think that in your head. That the rebellion against the lordship of Christ, of Christ only gets you eternal, everlasting judgment. Two points that I want to make this morning. And I'm going to soften it by simply changing one word. The hell of rebellion. The hell of rebellion, and then secondly, judgment and patience. Is that a little softer? <laughs> the hell of rebellion. Now, we need to figure out first who Babylon is. And then we can look at why the great sentence. Verse 8, another angel, this is the second after the one we see in verse 6. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There are really two different perspectives that the sort of preterist or partial preterist camp focus on that camp to which I belong and interpret from. It is either Jerusalem or Rome. I would argue this, that all the evidence points to Jerusalem for this reason. When we go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 15, in chapter 17, in chapter 19, and prior to that in chapter 12, but in seed form, God makes a covenant with Abram. After that, Abraham, his name changes, that he will be the father of a great nation, that he will be blessed so that Israel might be a blessing to the nations. And God is bestowing upon the nation of Israel, according to the promise he made with Abraham, this incredible blessing. What is that blessing? 
It is the gospel of salvation. I will make you great. It is the gospel that is to them being received by faith and then proclaimed to the nations. And pictures of that blessing of international righteousness is when Israel is delivered out of the land of Egypt and there is not just one nation beholding the curses of God upon Egypt, but Egypt sees it. And as Egypt at the time was a global empire, the greatest of all empires at that time, it would stand that it was not only Israel that was in captivity, but other tribes, tongues, and nations as well who were working for the Pharaoh, enslaved to build their great buildings and monuments to pagan gods. And so when Pharaoh said, after his own son had been killed, get out of here, Israel not only left having looted the nation, plundered the wealth of the Egyptians, they also took with them other people and other people groups, uncircumcised pagans who were being brought into the fold of God because they saw that God was greater than the gods of Egypt. And in this, Israel was a blessing. And this is what Israel was to do, was to be a blessing to the nations by proclaiming an inclusive gospel only upon these terms. You must, by faith, receive the covenant of the Messiah. That's what I mean by inclusive. You must meet God on his terms. You must believe and keep covenant with him. Now, by the time that Jesus came in human form as Emmanuel, Jerusalem... Israel, the nation of God, his beloved people, had ceased for many years and many generations to be a blessing to the nations. In fact, what they did was they, in their pride, not only rejected the mercy of God, but the accompanying call to proclaim that mercy to the nations. And so the great anger of Christ that we see on display and his jealousy for the father when he walked into the courtyard of the temple and the Gentile courtyard which occupied many acres saw the Jews selling in such a way that proclaimed this to the Gentile nations in order to be in right fellowship with God you had to become a Jew And Christ begins to overturn the tables because they were not giving the gospel freely, but selling it. They were selling it. This is why the temple had to go. And that great Babylonian idolatry that Jerusalem had come to be described as practicing. Fallen, fallen, John says. Jerusalem's rebellion, that great city. In fact, in Psalm 87, we read, The Lord built Jerusalem on the holy mountain. He loves its gates more than any other place in Israel. City of God, wonderful things are said about you. God says, I will put Egypt 
and Babylon on the list of nations that know me. People from Philistia, Tyre, and Cush will be born there. They will say about Jerusalem, this one and that one were born there. God most high will strengthen her. The Lord will keep a list of the nations. He will note this person was born there. They will dance and they sing all good things come from Jerusalem. That was once was said of Jerusalem. But no longer. No longer was that city great. And what is then the great testimony? That when Christ rode into that city, there were a handful who sang Hosanna, Hosanna. But not much long after that, the city was unified in crying out what? Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Think of all the things that God has said of that great city. Words of devotion, acts of faithfulness, keeping his covenant. This is the hell of rebellion. It is to see and behold the grace of God and to know its glory and to see his might time and time again to be delivered out of the hands of those pagan nations only to do what? When Christ comes among them, they kill him. And so in contrast to the message of liberation that we see in verses 6 through 7, we find a sentence of destruction. Jerusalem is the great betrayer. For she, as a kind of stand-in, a summation of, an encapsulation of the hearts of the nation, rejected her king when he came to her. And not only with power, but with salvation. And so we see this principle. To embrace the gospel is to have life. To reject it is to embrace death. To see the Messiah and him clearly revealed to you, and even in the face of clear salvation, say no, is to earn the title of Babylon. It is ultimately, therefore, the church that is capable of the greatest betrayals and treasons against God. Think of your children, parents, and the sermons they grow up hearing. They're not all great, but they should all be clear. And they should be clear in this way. There are one of two ways to go. There are two names that you can bear. There are two eschatological ends to which you are moving You are either moving towards glory or you are moving towards destruction. Choose whom this day you will serve. And the world says, well, listen, if you say that to them, they're never going to come to church. And I say, if you've never said that to them, they've never been to church. Never. For what is the church? If it is not what the angels declare from glory, first... Fear God, give glory to him, for his judgment is coming, so worship. But if you do not, this free offer 
to believe. And as Christ would say, if you come to me, I will not cast you off. What is this sentence then grounded upon? Lest we accuse God of injustice. It is the continual movements that God makes towards the whole of humanity, making abundantly clear, as Paul would say in Romans 1, that there is wrath, and then the charge to the church that you're going out to people who know they are condemned, and so bring them the gospel of salvation so that they may not stay in that state of condemnation. This sentence is grounded upon the righteousness of God revealed against the ungodliness of men. God is able to condemn because the Messiah has come. And God is able to show mercy because the Messiah has come. So when you read in the scriptures that it is at the cross of Christ where mercy and judgment kiss, it is because at the cross the Father judges all men. And you are either covered, as the Israelites were in Egypt, by the blood of another, or you are outside of the mercy of God and you experience his wrath naked and alone without a covering. This is what Jerusalem is experiencing not only wrath, but a special kind of wrath. Because Jerusalem is not named for Christ by the Father, but is utterly reprobate and apostate. Verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wrath of God. Why? Because he bears the mark of the beast upon his forehead and his hand. And that is what remains for those who are not named by God, given the name of Christ, but are named by the beast. And so what is to come? What is in store then for Babylon and for any and all who reject the mercy of God? Second point, judgment and patience. Well, let's look at those marks again. The question we ought to ask ourselves is what does the mark get you? Well, there are two marks in Revelation. There are two names There is the mark by which we are sealed in Revelation chapter 7 and earlier in this chapter where the 144,000 bear upon their heads and their hands the name of Christ given to them by the Father. It is a picture of our divine election. The Father has given to the Son from eternity past a peculiar people, a beloved people. A limited people. And the father gets to make the choice. He does this because he's God. And because he's the father, he gives them to the son as a gift of his love. As a gift of his devotion to his son. So that we who are the bride might know something of the love between the father and the son. It is a transaction of affection between the persons of the Godhead. And we who bear his name are eternally 
unchangeably united to Christ so that we who are numbered on earth are also those who are numbered in heaven. That's what we see in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. So that even now while we are worshiping here on earth, we are somehow mystically united to the Godhead in heaven and we also worship there. Isn't that great? So you can put up with relatively shoddy architecture because ultimately we're worshiping in glory. Bear with it. You can worship under a tree or the most pristine of all sanctuaries and we are still before the throne of God. But then there are those who bear the mark of the dragon or the beast. Here in Revelation chapter 14, we see again this beast that speaks on behalf of the nations of the world. In particular, those who practice false religions, the Jewish priests that I said are the beasts of the the land who utter words of betrayal in order to support human power that is contrary to Christ's divine power and purposes. And the way in which you are known is by whom you serve. Whose name do you bear? And there are two names. To me, this is one of the greatest arguments for infant baptism. You bear one of two names. Which one is it? There's no halfway covenant. There is no halfway covenant. And your children are either named by Christ or they are named by the devil. And every single Christian parent should say, and rightly so, upon the promises of God given to me as a professing Christian, get your hands off my son and my daughter. He does not belong to you. She does not belong to you. She belongs to God. And not only are we to do that with our children, we're to do that with our churches. Remember when we had a dedication service here? This is not a sanctuary devoted to anything except what? The worship of the triune Lord. Now, it's not sacred in the sense that if you spill something in the pew, like, right, we often spill grape juice. (gasps) Like it's some sort of blaspheming. No, it is just stuff. But what we do here is different from what we do everywhere else. Now, you can do this somewhere else, but we have said this property, this parking lot (laughs) is devoted to the work and the worship and the furthering of the kingdom of God. And what we are called to do in every area of life is we are to plant the flag of the lordship of Jesus Christ on everything. Now, that doesn't mean if you own a business, you need your Jesus fish on the business card. But you are to practice the honor of Christ in everything. We are either named by Christ or we are named by the devil. And this is what happens. If you reject the lordship of Christ, it is a description of hell. Hence, the hell of rebellion. This third angel comes. And he follows the second that we see in verse 8. And he says with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now, why does he say also? Because the drinking of wine 
in its symbolic understanding is related to God's covenantal act that comes in two ways. There is the sweet wine of fellowship and there is the bitter wine of judgment. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane goes a little farther and he falls on his face and he prays and he says, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is the cup? Well, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, Jesus is on the cross. The nails have been driven into his body. And from the sixth hour unto the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard him say that, they say this man is calling for Elijah. No, he was calling out to his father. And immediately one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with bitter wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. What is Christ drinking at the cross? The bitter wine of God's wrath. And he is the only man who has ever lived, died, and lived to tell the tale. You and I could not drink of that cup. And if we were, what would come? Brimstone, torment, fire, in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lord. An eternal and everlasting torment from which we would have no rest. Verse 11. We cannot drink of the wrath of God and survive. You and I will drink wine in two ways. Either we will drink the sweet wine of forgiveness because Christ has drunk the bitter wine for us. Or we will drink the bitter wine that Christ drank because he is not for us. And woe be unto you if you reject such a glorious offering. This is the gospel. And it comes with a sweet offer, but also a bitter Second part, the other side of that coin is if you reject the sweet wine of fellowship, there is only the bitter wine of covenant cursing. And this hell of rebellion is as everlasting in its torment as the delights are everlasting of God's salvation that we see in verses 6 and 7. It will never end. And Christ will be there the whole time. And you will drink of his wrath for all eternity. I've said it and I will say it again. Hell is not an eternal absence or existence of suffering in the absence of God. It is an eternal existence of suffering in the presence of God as judge. Children, do you know that? And I'm not trying to say, Okay, I am. <laughs> 
holy fear. That feeling of displeasure when you know that you have broken the hearts of your parents or angered them in their righteousness and you just want it to stop. Or maybe couples, you have done something to damage your relationship with your spouse or a friend and you feel the weight of that discord and you just want it to end. Can we just move on? Can we bury the hatchet? It is 24-7 for the rest of eternity. It is an unceasing torment. Now the question for us is what? Is it literal or symbolic? Well, if it's literal, it's bad. But if it's symbolic, it's worse. For there is no symbol in Scripture that does not speak to an even greater reality of that symbol. If it is eternal burning, it's bad. If it is symbolic, how much worse. And to see Christ every day for the rest of your eternal life and know, I missed it. And there was mercy offered. I remember that time where I was 12 years old and I was in church and the pastor said, come, not necessarily down the aisle, but maybe, repent and be saved. And then I heard it again when I was in 24. Repent. And I said, no, tomorrow. I love my sin. I want to cohabitate with that person. I want to keep delighting in these things. I want to steal. And then later again, I went to church with a friend on an Easter Sunday when I was in my 30s, and I heard it again. And I said, you know, I don't know if I can pursue the things I want to pursue in this life and be a Christian. Think of the opportunities that you and I have. It's impossible to walk through this world and not see the kindnesses of God around every corner. And in fact, that's the kind of world that we are called to create, isn't it, saints? The kind of world where an unbeliever cannot escape the invitations to come to Christ and be saved. And to know what happens if we do not. And I'm not saying these things merely to evoke an emotional response because I feel like that's what I'm getting paid to do. I'm saying these things because God has said them to us. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. You will never sleep again. This week, this Sunday morning, you got maybe another hour of sleep. I woke up at 2.30 wide awake. So I've been up for eight hours. I'm exhausted. (laughs) You know what happens when you don't sleep? When your body can't enter into REM, REM sleep? You begin to lose your mind. Your humanity, you lose grasp upon it. It is an eternity of torment without rest. It's terrifying. But then there is a little turn here at the end in verse 12. Here, 
John writes, knowing what we see in verses 6 through 7 and then in verses 8 through 12, knowing what the glorious grace of God and the eternal wrath of Christ, here is our patience. What is that patience? That we can endure the torments of men because we fear God more than men. What can man do to you? Except what? What's the most he can do? Kill you. That is the most that one man can do to another. Now, he may also kill your family, but those, again, are just your lives here on earth. But then Christ says, fear the one who can kill the body and send the soul to hell. Whoa, Jesus, I'm not ready for that. That's a Sunday night sermon, okay? That's for, like, the special people that come back. That's for the super Christians, That's not for these American evangelicals who want to win elections. Lord, give us something softer. But there is the rub. Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. It is both. It is the glory of mercy and also the terror of judgment that what ought to keep us going is not only a love for God, And the extraordinary gratitude of his kindness, but also what? I never, ever, ever want to be in hell. I don't want that to happen to me or to anyone else I know. And for all of his weird issues, Richard Baxter hit it on the head when Richard Baxter says, If you, Pastor, climb into the pulpit... And you cannot look out at the people as those who have eternal souls that may be called that very day... And you don't preach like a dying man to dying men. You have no business preaching. And I'll be honest, some Sunday mornings, I don't preach that way. (laughs) But Revelation 14, it won't let us slide out from underneath this hard truth that the patience of the saints is that we live in light of eternity. And because we have been given this glorious gift and call fear god give him glory his hour of judgment has come worship him we can look at the beast we can look at the dragon and we can say do your worst because i have nothing to fear for i am redeemed because christ is my arbiter and he has said of me in light of my profession And my holding fast to him, I will see eternal rest forever. That for those this morning who bear the name of Christ, we can be patient because Christ is our king. The lordship of Christ and the knowledge of it in its implications, salvation and judgment is what calls us to hold fast to him. Dear saints, we need to know the plot if we are to be faithful. And God has not said to us, your life will always be easy. And in fact, count it a blessing that we live when we do because we see the darkness coming. And we can say for some of us, maybe for the first time in our lives, you know what? I've had it easy the first 40 years of my life. I'm looking forward to the next 40. Bring it on. Or as MacArthur said, you know what? I've never been to prison. I'm looking forward to having a prison ministry. 
Now, he was vindicated and never ended up in prison, but I'm sure he would have been happy there. That's what we. But that is our patience. That is our perspective. It is to keep the commandments of God and hold fast to Christ. Because his salvation is everlasting, and so too is his judgment. May today then be the day of your salvation. Let's pray.